This is David Osman. Early in 1968, an album like no other before it made its way from the venerable presses of Columbia Records to a few stores and radio stations. Called Waiting for the Electrician, or someone like him, it took the forgotten forms of radio and mated them with the rock revolution. Written during the fabled Summer of Love, the electrician pulled the plug on comedy as a button-down artifact of the nightclub era and pushed it into the streets where the people were, demanding power. To celebrate the quarter-century birthday of Electrician, I've asked my colleagues and co-authors from the Firesign Theater to talk about the album and the times that made it happen. Coming up, in disorder of appearance, Peter Bergman, Phil Austin, Phil Proctor, and me, the Firesign Theater. This is uh, Radio Free Oz Carole, 1110 on your radio dial, coming to you from Pasadena, but we're coming from the Magic Mushroom, 11345 Ventura Boulevard in Studio City, where I don't even know if we have any more room left. If you come, you're going to have to stand, but you're going to stand for spontaneous sound and for the ghost of our toe, and baby, it's the sweetest thing going down. We take you now to the Freak Food and Drug Administration press conference room for a brief statement from a high government official. Ladies and gentlemen, the United States government has, as many of you know, been engaging in many months of intensive research into the smoking of certain underground papers. <laughs> the result of our exhaustive labors has proven conclusively that, if carefully selected, dried, and tightly rolled, there are positively no ill effects. As a matter of scientific fact, the effects are recreational and instructive. Are there any questions? Uh, Mr. Secretary, Mr. Secretary, Mr. Secretary, yes, yes. yes. Uh, Bob Meltface of the New York Timeless. Are any of uh, are any of the high ups in Washington experimenting with these items? Yes, as a matter of fact, the Joint Chiefs. Uh... <laughs> uh, next. Uh, Mr. Secretary, uh, Billy Brownshoe of the Christian Science Monster here. Uh, isn't it true that the, uh, the smoking of uh, underground papers can uh, lead to a more uh, serious addiction, sir? Yeah, unfortunately, it's true. Kids uh, who've been turned on to open city dealers hanging around their high schools often turn to such opiates as life and time and time Again and again and again. Next. Uh, this is uh, Mario Estonatl of uh, Open Ciudad. Uh, does your government intend to modify the presently severe penalties for smoking underground papers? I smoked this morning with the great man himself. <laughs> and and, and he, he said to me, My fellow secretary... Five years in federal prison is the least I can do for every American boy and girl between the ages of 13 and 87. So I see very little hope for the future. Neither does Open City. So before it becomes legal and no more fun anymore, smoke Open City. Rounder, firmer, and more fully packed. Open City. Only $5 a year or 15 cents from your local pusher. Open City, ahead of the times.
Where were you in 1967? 1967. Well, Radio Free All started in 1966, in the summer of 66. Firesign Theater got its contract to make a record with Columbia Records in the spring of 67. And I was living on Valley Oak in Hollywood. And uh, it was at that house that the Firesign Theater wrote uh, the material for the uh, Waiting for the Electricians album, as I, as I remember. Um, and uh, the reason the Firesign Theater got its contract is because of the, the love-in that was staged off of my radio show. 40,000, 50,000 people showed up in Elysian Park on Easter of 67. And that, that encouraged uh, Gary Usher at um, Columbia Records, a producer, to say, well, let's, let's do a love-in record. And we said, no, let's do this thing called the Firesign Theater because we have this comedy group. And he's, actually, we called ourselves the Oz Firesign Theater then. Later on, Disney called us up. One of their high-powered lawyers told us that they would sue us for everything we were worth if they, we didn't take the word Oz off, which I've always thought was ironic because Oz was a land where everything was supposed to belong to everybody. <laughs> But the Wizards, I, we didn't look behind the cloth. We didn't have the money. So we said, okay, we dropped it. It became the Firesign Theater. Uh, how did we decide to do what we wanted to do? Well, there were a lot of influences that, that, uh, that we all uh, vibrated with. I know that Dave Osmond, yourself, and Phil Austin were very heavily uh, fans of The Goon Show, the comedy group in, in England. So... You had the idea of doing skits. You loved the idea of doing long, kind of complicated skits about something with the opportunity of, of taking off and being as loony as possible around some sort of a central theme. And I'd come out of writing musical comedy so that I liked the idea of doing structured pieces also that had beginnings and middles and ends. And Phil Proctor came out of theater very much. In fact, was in theater at the time. So his idea of being involved in writing plays, I think we all saw it in a certain way as writing audio plays. Nobody was asking us at the time what they were, but I think all of our backgrounds were out of theater of one sort or another. And uh, therefore, the idea of writing plays for, for a record seemed a perfectly good thing for us to do. All of us at that time lived in the Hollywood Hills, where we are now, which is where these noises are emanating from. I was part of the Laurel Canyon uh, crowd, the uh, ladies of the canyon scene. And uh, what I remember most about, I guess to lump it all into one thing, is that Everything about the Firesign Theater in those days, as perhaps in these days, has to do with finding a common denominator and then trying to find some entertaining way of, of writing that common denominator down, of actually fixing it in time somewhere. I had grown up in a world of theater. That was my ideal, really, in life, was to be a playwright or to be an actor and to be something great in the theater. And radio came to me purely out of accident because of things having to do with the armed services. I wound up in a radio uh, division and uh, came out of the service interested in radio, not horrifyingly interested in it, but at least knowledgeable. And I'd always loved uh, people like Vachel Lindsay and voice theater sort of things from the 30s, which were allied in my mind mostly with New York, a, a place far away from Fresno, California, where I grew up. And... 
so to me at that time, speaking only for myself, it seemed logical to, since we were going to make records uh, and that they were audio and that we weren't going to do music, that somehow what we had to do was more allied with what was then a dead art form radio, except for a few people locally in Los Angeles, uh, uh, Gary Owens, Margolis, Arbogast, some very good writers and entertaining and kind of surreal humorists were on the air. And you and I working at KPFK had access to these people on a personal level. They would come by and do marathons with us and help us out. And I early on got the kind of feeling of what it was like to sit in a room with Bob Arbogast and Gary Owens at least, the two fastest minds I had heard and try to keep up with them a little bit, which I couldn't do. Within a year or so afterwards, on the radio with you and with Phil and with Peter, I was able to keep up with guys who it turned out were um, faster. I don't mean better. I've always thought Bob Arbogast is one of the funniest people I've ever met. We were, we were funny enough, but we had this feeling for each other's rhythms and, and a kind of openness while we were talking to each other's ideas that was very unique to me. So then we tried to write it down and fix it. We were already on the radio. We could already do this stuff. We already had a slight... We weren't making any money at all. We all had other jobs, but we were kind of well-known around town. At that point, we then had to discover writing. And with mostly you at the, uh, at the controls of the typewriter, which was a godsend in those days to have at least one person, not to have four people typing at once in the same room... Um, we began to combine our ideas. And the very first album is a combination of the, the first side. The material to me is very much um, influenced, not necessarily written by one person or two people, but very much uh, brought to the fore. You and I very much our work with the Indians at KPFK. Serious documentaries we're, we were doing tended to uh, spark uh, temporarily Humboldt County. All of us involved, particularly with KPFK, uh, in the uh, the world of psychedelic madness, obviously inspired that piece. And uh, but in particular, Phil and Peter were out there on the street doing radio documentaries, and I feel very strongly that that material was more influenced by by the two of them than it was by myself, and and so forth on the first side. The second side, oh my God, there's a second side. We've run out of material. We best do something. Sitting up in one house or another in the Hollywood Hills, we began to do what, for the first time, you think of as the Firesang Theater, which is to fill up space by lying around on couches and going, David, are you going to write this down? Or I think we should write this down. Or, ah, God, that's awful. Somebody come up with something else. Or just trying to make three other people laugh, which is each of our problem in the Firesang Theater. You try to make these three other guys laugh. And each audience for each person is different for each person. So to me, we are then entering into the world that you could feel at the end of Electrician, at the end of Side 2, where we had for the first time begun to write what might be called plays. Uh, it's to some extent a kind of automatic writing, if if people know what that is, that, that used to be a big thing in the turn of the century, that spirits would come to people if you just kind of put in a, in a kind of a cult situation, you would put your pen to paper and something would just write through you. That's what often seemed to me that we were doing. We were just by making all these little compromises, working hard, typing our stuff up, retyping it, performing it, working on it, endlessly going over it. We were, in fact, never controlling the material we were just merely reaching some kind of common denominator that began to control us. And we always characterized that as being 
a fifth person that worked with us, and we would name companies, four or five crazy guys and stuff like that as a kind of private code to ourselves. 